So tonight is the half moon night. Come together to practice Dhamma. It's the end of the summer season, going into autumn. So the weather is quite conducive for practice. Not too hot, not too cold. You can even find a spot in the forest at this time of year and sit meditation out in the open air. If you choose your spot and you sit quietly, you can even sit without any kind of protection from insects and sit quite peacefully. Not too hot, not too cold. Community is quite small. This monastery doesn't have many, much activity, so it's a conducive time for meditation practice. It's also a time to reflect on teachers and the qualities of Sangha, Sangha Anusati. Next week there's the cremation of Venerable Ajahn Mahabua, a contemporary of Ajahn Chah. Monk who dedicated, sacrificed his life for both realization of Dhamma, Magapalanibbana, and then also for teaching others. If you ever visited his monastery when he was alive, even though he's a popular teacher with visitors, the monastery was always very quiet. were sitting meditation at night, I mean very little to disturb you in terms of noise coming and going. As he emphasized meditation in the development of mindfulness backed by a firm foundation of Vinaya practice in his teachings and the way he ran his monastery. They tried to keep things quite simple. The buildings they built there were for the purpose of just supporting the practice. And the hall was for meditation, for Sangakama, eating a meal. There was enough facilities just for the basic conveniences of living together as a community, but nothing too luxurious or superfluous. Kutis were simple, suitable places for meditation in seclusion. And over and over again in his teachings, he emphasized the qualities of the Sangha, as in Sangha Anusati, 
สุปฏิปันโนอุจุปฏิปันโนญาญาปฏิปันโนสามิจิปฏิปันโนเป็นสิ่งที่เราต้องพิจารณาสำหรับมังคุดนิยมและนิยมอากาศที่ปฏิบัติในธรรมวินัยนี่คือสิ่งที่เราต้องพิจารณาสำหรับการปฏิบัติในชีวิตเราและเราต้องพิจารณาสำหรับการปฏิบัติในชีวิตเราและเราต้องพิจารณาสำหรับการปฏิบัติในชีวิต And these define the qualities of a samana ordained in the Buddhist religion in Dhamma Vinaya, practicing to realize the four noble truths, to develop the eightfold noble path for the realization of nirodha, cessation of dukkha. We all of us aspire to find inner peace, happiness, and well-being. So this is the Buddhist path towards that. And practicing well means practicing with developing wholesome states of mind as one's. Daily effort. Direction in the practice. You have a clear direction. You're developing kusala dhammas, bringing up kusala dhammas, and developing them in your daily life. And this is practicing with right view and right understanding. Kusala dhammas means mental states, means thoughts that are directed to wholesome. Objects, so renunciation, celibacy, the renunciation of sensuality and craving based around sensuality, harmlessness, and giving up one's anger, giving up hatred. These are the kind of wholesome dhammas we're developing in all the different aspects of our practice on the level of body, speech, and mind. This is practicing well. You know, Samana, they learn to live content with little fewness of wishes, live at ease within the requisites that they have. Live developing the wholesome states of the eightfold noble path: right effort, mindfulness, one-pointedness, yes. right speech, right action, right livelihood, and abandoning the unwholesome, abandoning all forms of greed, selfishness, anger, hatred. And delusion and ignorance, which underlies all of that. The one who practices well, they keep the vinaya, because the vinaya is just directed to these ends to train us to 
give up our greed for the material things of this world. We have to give them up anyway because we're going to die one day. Nobody can take their wealth and the possessions of this world with them. So we're learning to give them up now. Give up that grasping at all the sensual experiences of this world. The Vinaya supports that. So we have to learn to be restrained in the use of requisites and how we obtain requisites. And give up our harmful ways, ways of being aggressive in action or speech, aggressive towards others, harmful towards others whether it's small or minor ways of just being insensitive to others, cold to others, displaying our irritation, our aversion, or more obvious ways of displaying anger and aversion towards others, or sometimes towards ourselves, just dwelling in anger, angry, negative mind states. We're learning to give that up using the Vinaya as our foundation, learning to live in a harmonious way with the other members of the community and the lay community and the world in general, even animals. We're learning to live at peace with others. So neither taking advantage of others, exploiting them, trying to get things from them or use them, nor harming them. All the Vinaya training is teaching us that skill and that bringing up those wholesome states of mind that support that living in a harmless way, not exploiting the world, not exploiting other people. And then inwardly we're developing the wholesome states of mind, renunciations, developing dana. Chaka, generosity of mind, letting go, giving up of one's possessiveness, one's stinginess. Metta, and letting go of anger, replacing it with loving kindness. And giving up hatred, replacing it with compassion, sensitivity towards others. What we call right thought, samasankapa. One who practices well, supatipano, this is how they're practicing, they're developing this path of abandoning unwholesome and developing the wholesome in their body, their speech, and then in their mind. This is a bhikkhu, isn't it? When people think of a monk, they think of one who is living in simplicity, content with what they have, one who is careful what they say they do, one who's living in harmony with other people, with nature, with the environment. Anybody, even non-Buddhists, they have that kind of picture in their mind of a, any form of a monk or a renunciant, a samana. They have some kind of idea like that, and that's how a samana lives. They would be shocked if a samana was 
displaying greed or selfishness in their behavior. Even non-Buddhists would probably be shocked or turn away from a, a samana who was acting in that way or a samana who was acting in angry ways, you know, scolding people or being rude to people or being aggressive to people. People wouldn't be inspired or have faith in a samana like that. What they do find inspiring is people who are willing to commit to the training in Vinaya and training in Dhamma, willing to set aside more worldly ambitions, their greed, their selfishness, to live in a lifestyle where they're quite disciplined and restrained and willing to be patient, not give in to anger or hold grudges. This inspires people, so it not only supports our own practice when we live in that way, but it also supports the practice of others. We become a good example to others. The Lungtao Mahabhura is always encouraging monks in this way. Many times I stayed in his monastery and give talks. I can remember one time he said, this monastery is not a place for monks to argue and have conflicts. If that's what you want to do, go and live somewhere else. This is a place to develop Eightfold Path for Enlightenment. You might say a very direct teaching, but it's true, isn't it? Your monastery isn't a place for conflict. We have to learn to be patient with each other, with other people, have to be tolerant, have to be willing to sacrifice our ego when we live in a monastery and not always want to be right or be the top or to be the best or the winner. We also have to learn how to let go and be flexible in our mind or be compliant, pliable, malleable sometimes. You have to see other people's point of view, you have to see things from different angles and so on. Lungdamahabo also always talked about Ujupatipana, one who practices directly or straight. Talk about straight from the heart or straight as in in line with Dhamma Vinaya, in line with truth. You'd say things like, don't practice in a way where you're bending the truth, twisting the truth. Don't be one who is bent or twisted. Literally in a physical sense, he had one of the best postures you could imagine for someone of his age, even maybe not this last year, but until he's 96 years old, I never saw him once slouch, never once. Even when he was ill, he'd sit up straight. It's a sign of one who's straight in mind, is straight in body. I mean, that's how the Buddha taught, didn't he? You, ask, you read the suttas, the Buddha said, a bhikkhu goes back to his kuti 
sits erect establishes mindfulness of the in and out breath. And Lungta, just in his posture, was excellent example of that. He was straight in his posture. Not careless, not slouchy. And he'd remind the monks, I remember once, the what Nana Chap monks went to see him and he gave a talk and during the talk... It was after the meal, so the monks, maybe their stomach's full of food, it's hot, so they start to slouch a bit. So he told one monk off, he said, that's not a way a monk sits, you have to sit up straight, sit up erect. If you're caught into negative views, you might just say, oh, who's this old monk scolding me? But if you look at it in another way, it's compassion, reminding you, to be more mindful of your posture, to be straight in your posture, and of course straight in the Dhamma. More on a more deeper level, to understand your intentions and to be clear in your intention and be straight and sincere in training yourself for Dhamma, to understand truth. To be true to the Dhamma, true to the practice, True to the Vinaya, I mean, dedicated to putting your best effort into keeping the Vinaya properly. True to the Dhamma, to training your mind in mindfulness and wisdom to understand the Dhamma. So he was one who's very direct. Sometimes people found that difficult, but if you reflected on what he said, it was always Dhamma teaching. He'd never talk about things that were off the point, worldly things, foolish things, idle chatter. His, his teachings, whether just chit-chatting when you have a massage him or sitting with him or whether it was a formal talk, is always very direct in a sense, pointing to Dhamma, pointing everybody's mind to the Dhamma, to the Vinaya, of any particular thing he was talking about, any aspect of the truth or the practice. Again, it's a good example to follow, to reflect on in your own life. Is my mind thinking about the Dhamma? Is it true and straight and directly in line with Dhamma? Or am I going off at a tangent, going off in some other direction, thinking about the world? thinking about getting more attached to the world, more stuck in the world, meaning stuck in kalesas, greed, anger, delusion. Or am I directing my mind out of the kalesas to the Dhamma? When we're stuck in the world, we're a bit like we're submerged in the ocean. If you want to survive and you want to be free. The only way to go is up and out of the ocean to the fresh air. The kalesas are like the ocean. If we let them just rule our minds and overwhelm our minds, then we're like we're stuck in the ocean the whole time. We haven't broken through the Dhamma, haven't seen the Dhamma. And that starts with just where we're directing our mind. Are we thinking about Dhamma or are we thinking about the world? our state of mind, what we think about, our attitudes, our views, what we talk about, what we do. This reflects that as well.
as a very simple reflection. Am I practicing well? Am I practicing directly? Directly in line with Dhamma, with Vinaya? Am I keeping the Vinaya? Am I developing understanding of Dhamma? Obviously these are very wide subjects, but you can be honest with yourself in your daily life. Am I being honest with myself? Am I honestly putting my efforts into training in Dhamma Vinaya? Am I being true to that? We ordain, we take on precepts and go through an ordination. Am I true to my ordination that I took, that I undertook the precepts that I keep? We ordain for realizing Nibbana, realizing the end of suffering. Am I being true to that? Am I directly practicing for that? We can use that as a reflection to help arouse energy, effort to overcome the obstacles. Of course, we all have obstacles. We have our attachments and our hindrances that we're working through, our character. We have some strengths and some weaknesses. Everyone's the same. But as a reflection, you can look at yourself on a daily basis and see whether you're really pointing towards the Dhamma in the way you're reflecting, the way you're living. Practicing insightfully, Nyaya Patipana, are we developing wisdom? Wisdom, understanding. First of all, that's just knowledge of the Dhamma. So do we, have we listened to enough Dhamma yet? Have we studied the Dhamma so we know the Dhamma that the Buddha taught? And sometimes we can even get lost in that. Forget the Dhamma or get caught into what is not Dhamma. teachings that we receive, whether it's we hear talks or read books, visiting teachers or the teachings like teachers like Ajahn Mahabua, do we take away the Dhamma they teach and reflect on it, think about it, look into our own minds and see where we can see the truths that they're pointing to in what they teach, what the Buddha taught in the suttas, in the Vinaya. We look into our own lives, our own practices. Is, is what we see and hear, is that, how does that apply to us? This is how we develop wisdom. You learn the Dhamma first and then you think about it. Compare your experience with what you've heard, what you've learned. You don't just believe it, but you can take it and reflect on it, contemplate it. And as the mind becomes more peaceful, then you actually see the Dhamma that you've been learning and hearing about. You actually can know the Dhamma for yourself. The flavor of Dhamma Vinaya is based entirely on wisdom. It's coming from the wisdom of an enlightened mind. The rules of training we follow weren't set down just blindly or kind of without any forethought. The Buddha gave these training rules in response to 
problems that arose for different bhikkhus practicing. You could see, oh, they need some guidelines, so you laid down rules to help them, train them. You can see the, the Vinaya is a, a training in wisdom, training in mindfulness, training in wisdom, so that we can understand how to live peacefully with each other, with the world, and with ourselves, and direct the mind to the Dhamma rather than to the to the world. All the meditation we do is to develop wisdom, develop mindfulness so that you can know truth as it is emerging in your daily life from moment to moment. When mindfulness is present, then there's a chance to see truth, know truth, know the Dhamma. When there's no mindfulness, we fall into delusion. And that's where suffering arises, isn't it? We get caught into craving, attachment, wrong views, wrong thinking. We make mistakes, we get deluded and so on, and we get confused and we end up suffering. When mindfulness is established, then wisdom can function. That's something we must train in. We train developing insight. One who practices insightfully, we're developing insight into truth. We're developing a state of mind that can see truth, that can have insight into truth. So if we're too distracted in the way we're living, then maybe it's too difficult to see truth. If we're thinking about worldly things, we can't see truth. It's something something we have to train in, practice, reflecting on ourselves, reflecting on on truth. When we come into the monastery, we tend to be our worldly habit is we're always looking outwards. Don't look at ourselves very much. We look at the world around us, look at other people. But this word insight, you know, in its very meaning, means looking inwards, seeing inwards. And we have to start training ourselves to look inwards as well. You know, if we have a fault-finding mind where we tend to always notice the faults of other people, we complain about others, we're unhappy with others. You turn it around and say, well, do I do that? Do I have any faults? Ajahn Chah used to say, looking at other people, maybe just look at other people, what they're doing, just 10% of the time. Those who are practicing well, maybe you get a good example. Those who are practicing not so well, where well, you learn where they make mistakes. But just 10% of the time, 90% of the time, look at yourself. Because we can't train other people. We can only, hopefully, have a good influence on others, give them a good example. But they have to be responsible for their own practice. We are responsible for our own practice. So 90% of the time we have to be looking inwards, looking at ourselves looking at our body, our feelings, our mind and the objects of this mind, the foundations of mindfulness. This is where insight arises. Even reflecting on Sangha, reflecting on teachers such as Ajahn and these qualities of Sangha, Ujjupatipano, Supatipano, Nyaya Patipano, Samiji Patipano. These are helping us to turn the mind internally and to bring them up internally, these reflections.
again, when lay people look at a monk, they're looking at somebody who's practicing insightfully. We may not have completely realized Dhamma yet, but we surely must be on that path. That's the direction of our lifestyle, is to develop insight, wisdom. People look to us for that. Even if we don't teach anybody or say anything to anybody, they assume that we must be living with wisdom because we're living in a way where we're harmless, living in a careful way, we're careful what we do, what we say, with morality, with sila, and directing our minds to contemplate truth and understand truth. That's what lay people expect from a monk. That's the purpose of this lifestyle. They also expect us to practice with integrity, samiji patipana. We're samanas, we're dependent on arms. We have to be responsible for that. To preserve the faith of the laity, we have to act in a responsible manner with integrity, not just for ourselves, but for the whole, the benefit of the whole religion. As bhikkhus, we're in the the eyesight, the vision of the laity, they see us because they come forward to offer alms. They come into contact with us. We're not hermits that you know, live far away from everyone just scraping a living ourselves. We are dependent on the alms of laity, dependent on their goodwill for our survival, whether we're here or anywhere else. So we can't exploit them, we can't take them for granted, we can't manipulate them. We can't harm them through body, speech or mind. We have to look after their faith for ourselves and for future generations of Buddhist practitioners. That's our responsibility when we become monastics. It's not such a difficult thing to do if we just practice carefully and do and sincerely, then we're doing that. We just will naturally be doing that. But also we have to be careful not to just take things for granted, become complacent. Just assume that people will help us and give us things and support us. We can't just assume that they'll listen to us. Be one who just tells people exactly what you think, what comes into your mind, you just say it to lay people. And lay people can easily get offended. They don't have as much patience as monks. They have the stresses of their family life, their work life. If you talk to lay people and criticize them, they'll immediately get offended. They'll wonder why you're saying that. They'll feel hurt. The monk has to be careful how he speaks, chooses his words, chooses his time, the place. Often it's best to say nothing at all, just be quiet. If you're one who's easily prone to negativity, you have to train yourself. If you're going to be finding fault with the lay people, they'll just leave you alone. They won't come near you. We can't exploit them either. We can't just assume they'll give us something that we want. That's not practicing with integrity. That's not samiji patipano. That's giving in to your own greed or selfishness, just wanting to use lay people for some selfish reason to get something, go somewhere, do something. 
This is what both the Dhamma and the Vinaya bring up in us, a sense of personal integrity. Somebody was asking me yesterday about being a monk and when I uh, travel, what do I do? How do I travel? Especially if you go abroad, how do you travel? I said, well, I have to wait for somebody to invite me, to help me. I can't just pick and choose. They said, what about going home? I said, yeah, I have to wait. When I was in Thailand, I had to wait 12 years before I visited home, before somebody offered me a ticket to visit home. It wasn't like I didn't care or didn't think about it. Every year I was aware that I hadn't visited home for one year, two years, three years, four years. Every year I was thinking, hmm, is anyone going to offer me a ticket? But nobody did. After five years as a monk, somebody offered me a ticket to go to Australia. I said I didn't want to go to Australia. I thought they might offer me a ticket to the UK. Maybe they thought I lived in Australia because I didn't tell them where I lived. But they didn't. So I just left, left it because I had no in- intention to go anywhere. It was 12 years before somebody made an offer. As monks, that's how we have to practice. If you're going to practice with integrity, you have sometimes to be willing to wait for the thing you want. And really, most things, we don't have to wait very long. The world is a wealthy place. Australia is a wealthy place. People give us all kinds of support very easily. But you can't take it for granted. If you're training yourself in the practice of a samana in these qualities, supatipano, ujupatipano, nyaya patipano, samiji patipano, you're practicing like a monk, like Ajimahabua, Lumpocha, then you have to train sincerely, honestly, directly, clearly, with integrity. The way integrity develops is through being patient, being willing to give up one's desires, being willing to be patient, to wait, to be kind, to be tolerant to be true to the Dhamma Vinaya, true to your goal of why you ordain and why you practice. You have to be willing to reflect on yourself. It's not that everyone expects us to be perfect. Lay people don't expect us to be perfect. They know we're practicing. They know when we come into the monastery, we start just like anyone else. Any lay people come in, they still have all kinds of faults and weaknesses and defilements and it takes time to work with ourselves and nobody expects anything different but they do expect a standard of behaviour a reasonable standard of behaviour for a monk and that's what the Vinaya is all about say an agreed reasonable standard of behaviour where we don't practice in an immoral way or a harmful way or a foolish way we don't do things that lay people don't do. Perhaps the most foolish thing is a monk who behaves worse than lay people. There's nothing that lose, you know, destroys the faith of laity is a monk who actually practices in, on a level worse than lay people. So lay people, you know, they might have their weaknesses. They can't always keep the five precepts 
perfectly, but generally they know what is right and wrong. They follow the laws of the land. So certainly all the lay people who come here are like that. So if we were to f do something that they would never do, then you, you're more foolish than them. And you're just making misery for yourself and for other people. But we can all keep a standard where we are keeping a basic reasonable standard of Vinaya, so there's no need for us to act in ways worse than lay people. But it's a reflection, isn't it? You know, we, at the very least, we have to keep the basic Vinaya of a bhikkhu because we are living on arms. We practice with integrity in this way. If we do that, then they give us support out of compassion. They understand we're in training and they see the value of it. Maybe they would like to train, but they don't have the opportunity. They have too many commitments. So they're willing to support us in, and, and are happy for us. They have mudita for us, that we are, have got the opportunity. So we have to respond wisely to that. We have to appreciate our opportunity, not waste it, not be complacent and not exploit it in, a, in say, a negative way. These are kind, the kind of basic issues that we have to think about as monks, how we are practicing, how to practice well, directly, insightfully, with integrity. These are simple but profound reflections that we can use every day to help us to learn more, to understand more what, what is the right way to practice that will help to bring us more peace and more understanding which is what we're all aiming for. To develop integrity, as I said, requires patience, time. So we all want quick results in the practice, but we also have to be willing to give it time. That's another part of integrity, isn't it? If you just try it for a short time and then just give up. Well, you haven't developed much integrity yet because it's almost like you're just sort of flirting with the practice or just dabbling in it. Someone with integrity is willing to give it a go, really, really learn, really experiment, really try in the practice. And often you can see people, they try in their practice, they're sincere, they might not yet have experienced the fruits or so much fruits of the practice but you can at least see them trying and that's quite inspiring. They have that integrity of somebody willing to have a go, willing to try, willing to put effort into the practice even if they have defilements and problems and obstacles and difficulties. Well, if they're trying, you tend to want to support them and feel feel for them. You think, oh yeah, that's the person having a go at it. It can be very inspiring, even if they haven't yet achieved very much. Just making the effort is inspiring. And that's integrity, isn't it? Having the, being willing to have a go work with whatever, whatever particular obstacle comes up. Ajahn Chah always used to say, if you keep practicing and you don't give up, you're bound to get something from it. You'll achieve something, something good. 
And that's in a kind of integrity, isn't it? If you're willing to just keep with it, not give up, not give in to defilements, not give up, not not just sort of get fed up and throw it all to the wind. Even though you might feel like doing that, you can also stop and say, well, that's just a thought, isn't it? If you feel depressed or disappointed or seems like a failure or something, you can say, well, that's just a thought. You don't have to follow that thought. It's just a mood comes and goes. That's integrity. Somebody has enough integrity that they don't just follow every whim, every mood, every thought, but they're willing to work with things and be patient. Practicing with integrity, one is trustworthy, reliable, in the sense one has some commitment to the practice. Commitment to Sangha, commitment to the Vinaya, commitment to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They really are taking the Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a refuge. That requires integrity and a sense of personal integrity, personal responsibility. Being true to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. These are the kind of qualities you'd always hear Lung Dabua talking about as sort of foundations or principles of good practice. He'd obviously talk at length about meditation techniques of calming the mind and then reflecting to see the Dhamma right through to the very highest level of the Dhamma. But you notice these themes would always run through his talks and his practice. The way he reflected on Dhamma. You think about it, the only way you can perfect Supatipano, Ujupatipano, Nyaya Patipano Samiji Patipano is through developing the Eightfold Path, experiencing Magapala, Sotapati Magapala, Sakatagami Magapala, Anagami Magapala, Arahata Magapala, and Nibbana. That's the only real perfection of these qualities of a, of Sangha. So at every stage of his teaching, he would sometimes teach very directly right up to the level Arahata Magapala. But it's perfecting Uju Patipana, Supatipana, Nyaya Patipana, Samiji Patipana. In Thai, they call it a monk who has Patipat Di, Patipat Cho. Patipat is Patipati, as in practice, training. D means well or good. Chop means correctly. The one who's practiced well and correctly. Right through, develop the Eightfold Path right through to its completion correctly. So their view is correct, right speech, right view, right action, right everything. That's one of the ways they translate this word right or samma, samma ditti. In Thai, the word is chop, kwamhin chop, is right view, chop. Chop means right or correct, that which is correct in Dhamma Vinaya. So whether you're talking about just basic learning the Vinaya, learning the chanting, learning to live the basic way and lifestyle of a monk, 
just learning to put your robes on. And this is practicing correctly, learning to practice correctly. Or whether you're learning about the refined levels of samadhi, the refined levels of insight, letting go of attachment to the khandhas, body, the mind, states of mind. It's all learning to practice correctly, practice well, isn't it? If there's any wrong view, delusion lurking anywhere, well, it's still not completely correct. And we still have plenty of that to, to work on, so there's plenty of things for us to do. We never have to be short of, short of uh, work in our practice. We, there's always something more that we can be doing. That's part of practicing well, isn't it? Always be willing to practice, willing to see where we need to develop ourselves more. It's part of that looking back at oneself, the 90% of the time looking at oneself, 10% at others. You know, we're the ones who have to do the practice for ourselves. So we have to learn to, where, to look, see where we need to improve ourselves, improve our actions, our speech, our mental states, improve our efforts. And the results are that we always get is feeling a good feeling. It's not that even though there's dukkha involved in the practice, it's dukkha for the ultimate, the ending of dukkha. The ending of dukkha means peace, happiness, well-being. So even though there's difficulty in it, it's not that there's no reward in it. The reward is the well-being that comes from letting go of greed, anger and delusion. And practicing well also means one feels well as a result of the practice in the long run, even though in the short run sometimes there's difficulty and suffering. It's worth it because in the long run one feels good, one feels at ease, peaceful in oneself. A true samana is a peaceful one. And they've trained themselves to give up the causes of suffering, to give up their delusions, their lack of mindfulness, lack of wisdom, which causes suffering. They've given that up so the mind is free from suffering. In the time of the Buddha, you can reflect on any of the disciples of the Buddha, just like Ajahn Mahabhur, but in the time of the Buddha, any of those disciples are examples of these qualities of Sangha. You see, the foremost disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, Moggallana, they practice well, practice insightfully, with integrity, and so on. Always supporting each other in the practice. Like good examples of how monks live together, like even from the time they were lay people, their goal was always to find a teacher who could show them the way out of suffering towards enlightenment. When Sariputta Upatisa met Venerable Asaji after hearing Dhamma from him, the first thing he did was rush to Moggallana to tell him, I oh, found a teacher, I found the path. And that's you know, true compassion is wishing for other people to understand the path that will help them out of suffering. 
and wishing for them to practice. So as bhikkhus, you know, a, a true bhikkhu is always developing concern for the other bhikkhus around them to understand the Dhamma and Vinaya practice for the end of suffering. Sariputta, Moggallana, like that. They didn't get caught into rivalries or comparing who's got the better samadhi or who knows more or all this kind of stuff. They're just thinking, how can I help and support my friend to understand Dhamma more? What can I do for him? So they would take each other to the teacher and took each other to the Buddha even when they're enlightened they would always be praising each other each other's virtues they wouldn't be competing obviously as arahants they've got no more ego and attachment left and when the yaka smashed his huge club on Sariputta's head as he's meditating, Moggallana comes up and says, did you see that yaka smashed you on the head? He said, well, I just felt a little bit of a headache as I was meditating. Moggallana said, oh, how amazing. Sariputta's mindfulness is so well developed. He's meditating and a yaka smashes him on the head and doesn't even bat an eyelid just notices a little bit of weight in her, but it doesn't lead to any negative outcome in his mind. Sariputta turns around and says, oh, what an amazing thing, how marvelous Moggallana can see the yaka that hit me. There's a being that normally you can't see. That's the way mature, wise monks relate to each other. They recognize and appreciate each other they're grateful to each other for the support. They help each other. They help the Buddha. The Buddha was always asking for their assistance in running the Sangha. It's not like the Buddha could do everything. He had to delegate to Sariputta Moggallana on many occasions to go and teach unruly, stubborn monks help sort out conflicts in the Sangha, or just teach lay people when the Buddha's not available. That's how Sangha works. We have to help each other out. We have to delegate duties, support each other, support each other in understanding Dhamma, support each other in keeping the Vinaya, support each other in running the duties and affairs of the Sangha. Obviously, Sariputta, Moggallana, they developed their relationship over many, many lifetimes. So it was, they had a good, close bond. They say they made their aspiration way back in the time of a former Buddha, many, many lifetimes previously. Sariputta had been a hermit up in the mountains with 84,000 students all living up in the mountains. Moggallana was a millionaire, wealthy prince living in the city. The Buddha came to the city to teach with his retinue of monks. The Venerable Sariputta in that life came down with all his students. They already were perfected in many of 
the psychic abilities in that life. He had great wisdom, but he also had great psychic powers. He could float through the air, all the kind of amazing, miraculous things one can do with a well-developed mind, except for insight into the Dhamma, into the Four Noble Truths. He hadn't developed that yet. He brought all his students down to meet the Buddha, and on that occasion the Buddha was just announcing to his own Sangha in that time who his chief disciples were in terms of wisdom and meditative ability, samadhi. So the equivalent of Sariputta and Moggallana from our Buddha's lifetime, but this is in the previous Buddha's time. So he established his chief disciples in front of all the gathered Sangha and laity and said, this is the venerable who is foremost in wisdom. This is the venerable foremost in meditative ability. Made that announcement. And Sariputta was so inspired at that point, he made an aspiration that if in the life of a future Buddha, he would wish to become the chief disciple in terms of wisdom. And the Buddha had his chief disciple give a Dhamma talk. Instead of him, it was the chief disciple gave the Dhamma talk. And the 84,000 disciples of Sariputta all became enlightened at that time. So even more inspired and impressed Sariputta he himself didn't become enlightened because he'd made that aspiration to become enlightened in the time of a future Buddha as his chief disciple. But all his students became enlightened, became monks at that time. The next thing Sariputta did was to rush off to see his friend Moggallana, the wealthy prince who'd been supporting him, bring him to the Buddha to hear Dhamma. And he made his aspiration to become the chief disciple in terms of samadhi, psychic ability, but also made great offerings to this huge assembly of monks. So from that time on, they both were set on their journey to become chief disciples in the time of Gautama the Buddha, our Buddha. They're always supporting each other in the practice over many lifetimes, being friends, supporting each other in different ways. But of different qualities, different characters. That's another aspect of the Sangha, even though we have these qualities, supatipano, ujupatipano, nyaya patipano, salmiji patipano, every enlightened monk embodies these qualities but then they're all different as well in the sense they have their different character their different abilities personalities so it's not like everybody comes exactly the same in that sense they have the same level of insight same purity of mind but they still have their personality so you have Sariputta, you have Moggallana you have very different characters different skills in the practice but both embodying these four qualities of enlightened Sangha. In our Buddha's lifetime, Moggallana is enlightened quite quickly, just seven days after joining the Buddha. After hearing the first teaching from Sariputta, he became a Sodapana, but then practicing as a bhikkhu, 
just seven days, his samadhi was so powerful. Once he overcome the hindrances, the Buddha taught him how to overcome sleepiness. He established and maintained his samadhi, then very quickly his insight came because his samadhi was so powerful, mastery of all the eighth jhanas, the abhinya. So just very quickly investigating the Dhamma, I could see the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of the five khandhas became enlightened. Sariputta took a little longer because wisdom is his leading faculty, not samadhi, and wisdom requires what? thorough analysis and contemplation of the Dhamma takes more time. So after 15 days, still not yet enlightened, but he was attending to the Buddha up in the cave, the pig's cave, on Kichikuta Mountain. If you've ever been there, it's quite a small cave, but it's cool when the middle of the day, the heat is quite intense up there, but the cave is still quite cool. If you sit under it, got a gentle breeze. So the Buddha was sitting there one day and Venerable Sariputta's relative, Diganaka the Brahmin, came wandering up Kichikuta Mountain looking for a place to die. It wasn't that he was about to die, but he was one who was careful and planning his future. He wanted to know where he was going to die. He wanted to choose that place. His criteria were, was that it has to be a place where no one else has died before. So already his criteria was flawed, but he didn't realize that. They came across the Buddha and he went up, paid, well he didn't pay respects because he was a Brahmin. But he sat down and talked to the Buddha. Venerable Sariputta was fanning the Buddha out of respect. So there was a connection between Diganaka, the Brahmin, and Sariputta. So he listened to the Buddha, and the Buddha started to talk to him about his wrong views. Now, first of all, you're not going to find a place in the world where nobody has died. Every spot, somebody has died sometime or other. And he asked him about his views on Dhamma, and Diganaka's views were very strong, very clear to him, but incorrect. So whatever I like... That suits me. Whatever I don't like, that doesn't suit me. I don't want. Whatever I like, I want that. I'll take that. I'll accept that. Whatever I don't like, I don't want. I don't accept. Which is how most of us begin our lives and practice. We want to practice on our own terms in the way we like. But if you think about it, it's a very selfish way and deluded way and not in line with truth. It's not practicing... Ujjupatipano, practicing directly in line with Dhamma Vinaya or truth, is just practicing in line with our own selfish desires and attachments. But that's how many of us begin. We, Everything I like, I want that, I accept that, that suits me. Everything I don't like, I don't want, doesn't suit me, I don't accept that, I won't take that up. Whether it's people, whether it's places, possessions, food, you name it. If we don't like it, we don't want it. If we like it, we want it. We try to run our lives like that and we suffer a lot because of it. So if that's your underlying view, you're bound to suffer. And the Buddha pointed this out to him very simply. He said, well, do you like 
old age? No. Do you like sickness? No. Do you like death? No. Are these things going to come to you? Mm, yes. Uh, so you're going to have to accept what you don't like then? Mm, yes. So your view is incorrect then? Even this view is incorrect. It's not suitable for you. You shouldn't accept that. Mm, true. So the Buddha just simply pointed out his view wasn't in line with truth. Old age, sickness and death, nobody wants that. And yet we all have to die. We all get old, we all get sick, we all have to die. Nobody wants that. So if you have a view that you're not going to take up it or accept anything you don't want, well that view will make you suffer when you meet with what you don't want, which is old age, sickness and death. This body is impermanent. It's not self Unless you accept that truth, you're going to suffer. The Diganaka, the Brahmin, gradually unwound from his firmly held view as he heard that talk and became a Sotapanna because he had many good qualities. He had enough insight at that point that he became a Sotapanna. So he perfected, at least on that first level, Ujjuparipanna, Suparipanna, Nyayapatipanna. Samiji Patipano. And whilst Sariputta was fanning the Buddha hearing that talk, he became enlightened, Arahant. So he also perfected those qualities of, us, of the Sangha. These are skillful reflections when we think of the disciples at the time of the Buddha or living examples of those who have practiced well, practiced directly, with integrity, with insight. And these are skillful reflections to both inspire us and guide us in our practice, how to practice well, how to practice correctly. So at this time is a good, good occasion to reflect on a bhikkhu who lived his life well, leaves us with a good example, his, at least his written and verbal teachings are available to us, even though he his living example is gone now. We can still benefit from his, the teachings he leaves behind. So tonight maybe I'll leave these reflections with you for your benefit or for you to make use of as you wish. <laughs>